verse in the middle. Just these two words. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What did Jesus mean by a new covenant? If you were raised in church and you've had time over years to study covenants, this might already be a deeply meaningful little two-word phrase to you. It may be something that you've unpacked joyfully time and again and examined the grace that God gave us in this gift. And you've opened it and you've examined it and you've looked at what the covenant means and you have enjoyed it. You've rejoiced in what God has done for you. It brings you uh, happiness and contentment that nothing else in the world can bring. And then you carefully store it in your heart so that time and again when it's needed, you can look at this gift of God. But a covenant is a word that we don't often use in our society today. And it may be that some of us here have failed over time to open up and look at this gift again and consider what it means and what a covenant was. And some of us may have never had an opportunity to know what is a covenant. And maybe the only thing we've ever heard about a covenant in our world today is, is whenever someone says, I am getting a covenant marriage or that marriage is a covenant. This is a this is an interesting thing about the state of Arkansas. We actually have <clears throat> two different uh, classes or levels of marriage. Uh, this is fascinating. One of them is just regular marriage, and uh, of course, historically, marriage has always been a covenant uh, in Scripture. In the very earliest times, that is exactly what it is. God says the man and the woman come together; they become one flesh. And like with most covenants, the only way to break it is for death to occur. And so it's always been a covenant, but in the state of Arkansas, we now have what's called a covenant marriage, uh, which is a marriage that it's much harder to obtain a divorce for, and you have to go through extra hours of counseling and other preparations before you can obtain this specific kind of marriage certificate. And it just shows that we don't understand the concept of covenant today in our world. It's not something we're very familiar with because essentially we're saying the covenant uh, kind of covenant marriage, which just speaks to how little we really remember. And so I would like to put another image in your head of covenant just to help round this out. So many of us have seen broken marriages, uh, the covenant destroyed, that it's very hard for us to see in the brokenness of marriage that you may have experienced in your world how God's promises could be so trustworthy. So think of this other kind of covenant. There is a covenant of adoption. That, is, that, that occurs whenever someone looks at a child that isn't their own biological child and says, I choose you. And so even though you know, I, I, I'm not the same DNA as you, I choose to make you and bring you into my family with as much rights, uh, with as much love, uh, with, with all of my life will be will be dedicated to parenting you just like any children that come from my flesh. I will never give up on you. I will call you son or I will call you daughter. It is a beautiful, mysterious thing that God does when he binds people together in adoption. And it's also a metaphor for his church. When someone chooses willingly to enter into a covenant with another person, it creates a deeper and more intimate relationship than could have been enjoyed 
without the covenant. Let's talk for just a minute about what a covenant is. And what was this in the Bible in the ancient times? First of all, a covenant is more than a contract. A covenant is more than a contract because uh, anyone can make a, a contract or a bill of sale, an agreement that I'll provide this service and you will provide this other service or I will provide this goat and you will provide three wheels of cheese or I will provide um, this this branding package, and you will provide this many dollars, and it's a contract, and if one end of the contract is broken, nobody dies. Everybody just, maybe there's a lawsuit. Uh, maybe if the contract is broken, there are some kind of uh, payments that have to be made, even though you didn't follow through on the contract. There are some stipulations to contracts, but they are merely business relationships. They don't go any deeper than that. Uh, a covenant is more than a contract. The stipulations to the covenants in the Old Testament is that we are binding each other together with our lives. It is a blood covenant. Someone will die if the covenant is not kept. And you need to understand that in ancient Mesopotamia, where Abraham comes from, where the Jewish people come out of, in that world, covenants were very common between liege lords and regular uh, people, everyday people. And the covenant always went in this direction. The liege lord would say to the regular people whom he had conquered or who he was adopting under his protection in some way, he would say, now, I'm going to make my covenant with you. And they would have to do some kind of ceremony. And they were the ones responsible for keeping the covenant. The regular people, if they fail to keep the covenant, might be subject to the penalty of death by the liege lord. They went this direction and this direction only, but they are more than a contract. They're also more than a relationship. We have lots of regular relationships that are not covenant relationships. And it would be unhealthy for us to try to make every relationship a covenant relationship. You cannot bind your life to another person's life every single time you meet a new friend. It's just not possible. And besides, there's a lot of relationships in life that it wouldn't be to your advantage or to theirs for you to have a covenant relationship. You probably have a favorite grocery store. And that store may be your favorite because of proximity to your house. It may be because of who owns the store and your loyalty to this ownership or that ownership. Most likely, your loyalty lies somewhere in the store that has the best prices. And you know, if that grocer or that chain was to decide we are dramatically raising our prices, your loyalty would be over. And you would move to the next grocery store, you drive a mile down the street, and you would say, now my covenant is with you. Except for, of course, it's not a covenant. It's just a regular old relationship, isn't it? It's just a relationship that says, <clears throat> for now, as far as things are going, I'm in this with you. And we have all kinds of friends that we meet during our growing up years and during our adult years with whom we are not in a covenant relationship because a covenant relationship is a personal relationship that's made more intimate by its legal binding. It's a personal relationship. It's where the liege lord says to the people, I will be your personal lord and take you under my protection if you follow these stipulations, it's made more intimate and more binding by the legal stipulations. It is when a man and a wife say to each other, 
we will forsake all others until death do us part. It's when a parent says to their adopted child, now you are my blood. Now you are my flesh. My, my commitment to you is forever. It will not fade. It will not perish. It will not spoil. It will endure. A covenant is a personal <clears throat> relationship made more intimate by legal binding. In Jeremiah 31, we find the one place in the Old Testament where God promises that there will be a new covenant. And to fully understand this passage, it would help you to understand that God's people had several covenants with Him. Uh, there's a covenant with Noah that God won't destroy the world by flood again. There's a covenant with Moses that we'll look at here just a little bit more deeply, but we have no time today to explore all of the depths of it, in which he says, I will make this entire nation my people. And so God, with Moses, says, I will be the liege lord, and all of these people will be the subjects, and I will make an intimate, binding legal relationship with them in which I will offer protection, and they will obey. This is one of the covenants. He makes a covenant with David. An heir to your throne will sit on the throne forever. Someone in your house will sit on the throne forever. This isn't a foreign language to them. And God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new binding personal relationship with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I want you to notice a few things about this, this backwards view from Jeremiah. He says, the old covenant, the one I made with them when they came out of Egypt, it will not be like that covenant. In that covenant, I became like a husband to the people of Israel and they broke the vows and the consequences that were clearly stipulated throughout Exodus and throughout Deuteronomy say that if they break this covenant, then they can no longer be my people. I'll send them beyond this land into exile. I won't know them anymore. And he says, no longer will it be that kind of covenant. Instead, it will be a new covenant. If you and your small group are meeting tonight and you don't have a, a book or a study prepared yet, you might want to read about this covenant that was made at the Exodus, the one God refers to in this verse. Exodus 24 verses 1 through 11 tell the story about how God brought the people to Mount Sinai and he has Moses take the blood of animals and put it in a basin. And when God gives the laws to the people and they agree to obey the laws, Moses takes some of the blood and he pours it out on the altar. And, and this is something that would just turn our stomachs, but he takes the rest and he splashes it across the people. As if to say, in a very uh, deeply symbolic way, in a, in a stomach churning, you'd smell it, the blood is on you, uh, it touched you kind of way. Beware. A covenant can only be broken by bloodshed. But God says this new covenant won't be exactly like that one. There will be some things about it that are different. He continues, he says, uh, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And so God moves this analogy from, from a, a stone, a tablet of stone that has the Ten Commandments etched on it. And the words of the law etched on it. A stone that is hard and it can be dropped and it can be broken like Moses did when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf. And in his anger, he threw it down and God made new ones for him. He says, instead of this kind of tablet, I will write it on their hearts. This sounds to us to be much more intimate, a more intimate covenant, one that is still legally binding, but now it is on soft flesh. We all know how soft a human body is. And when we read that it's written on their hearts, we think, ah, finally, Lord, a softer and more receptive surface for you to write on where instead of the law being external and foreign, God will make it internal. He will make it part of our own desire. He says, I will actually shape your will from the inside out so that you want to keep this new covenant and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But when God said that he would write it on their hearts, the readers of Jeremiah did not immediately turn their minds to a soft, fleshly surface. In Jeremiah 17.1, God had already written this about their hearts. He said, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. There's only a few places in Scripture where this Jewish idea of a pen of iron uh, is located. One of them is in Job. When Job is in so much mourning and distress, he says, I wish that my case before God was written with a pen of iron on stone so that it would endure the weathering of time and people for all of time would know how unfair this situation seems to me. That was Job's plea. Let it be written with a pen of iron. Little did he know that it would be preserved and that we would still be blessed by it today. But here God says it's the sin of Judah that is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, the hardest material known, the hardest natural material known. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And so in God's image of their hearts, He says their hearts are harder than stone. They're like, they're like the hardest rock. And it takes a pen of iron or of diamond, like a carbide tip, to engrave in them this sin. But they have so willfully persisted that they have gotten it etched into their heart. This was the condition of the people. And before we get too uppity and haughty and snooty and down on them, this is the condition of you and I before we know Jesus Christ, isn't it? In the New Testament, Paul picks up on this theme in 2 Corinthians a famous passage where he talks about the ministry of this new covenant. And he says these words. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And the great tension in Scripture, when we see the covenants, the great tension is how can the people's lives 
uh, be demanded for breaking the covenant because God makes the covenant and Moses splashes the blood and the message to the people is you break it, you will die. And God says you break it and you'll go into exile. Your hearts are so hard they can't even be inscribed except for with diamond. And how do we get to the point in the New Testament where the hearts are soft again, the Spirit is writing on the fleshly hearts a letter that is written by Jesus Christ as a testimony for all of the world. How is this tension resolved? How does God make it so that the impossible becomes possible? Continuing in Jeremiah, he wrote these things. He said, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. And what this means is simply uh, the people that are in the covenant. This doesn't mean that evangelism won't happen in the new covenant age. Because there's still lots of people in the world to whom we need to say, Know the Lord. Come to know Him. You don't know Him yet. You're not in the covenant yet. And so this does not preclude evangelism. But for those in the covenant of Israel, for those in the covenant of Israel by birth, there were many who did not know the Lord. And the people of Israel would plead with these other covenant members to say, please come to know the Lord. Respond to Him. You're part of the covenant people. And now, all people who are part of this covenant know the Lord. He says, from the greatest to the least, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God's goal throughout human history was to create a people where his law was so personally inscribed on their hearts that the relationship of the covenant had bound them so closely to him That there was no longer any sin to remember. It had been washed away. And how could God do it with people who are so stubborn like we are? People who, in our modern world, the only covenant that we even still do called marriage, we break all the time. We have broken relationships in almost every facet of our life. We have broken trust with our government. We have broken trust with our corporations. We have the, the pain of children who walk away from faith. We have the pain of grandchildren who walk away from faith. How can God restore these things and give any hope in a covenant community that is so far turned over to sin and brokenness? And how can He say, I will remember their sin no more? And so we look backwards to Genesis 15. To a moment when God came to Abraham, a person who also had trouble believing that God's promises could be so good or so sustaining or so life-changing. And in Genesis 15, and incidentally, tonight, if your small group's looking for something to read, you could read this too. This would be a great passage to read. God comes to Abraham and he says to him, I'm going to give you a descendant from your own body. Abraham's very concerned. Who's going to receive this inheritance? All the things you've promised me, the wealth you've given me, the land that you've promised, who's going to receive them? They're going to go to somebody else who's not of my blood. And God says, someone will come from your own body. And Abram has a lot of trouble believing this because he's very old. And he says to God, and this is this key moment in chapter 15, he says, how will I know that you will do the things you've promised? How will I know? And God says, Abraham, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a female cow. Bring me a three-year-old female goat. Bring me a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. 
You notice God doesn't say what to do with them. He simply says to bring these five animals. But Abram's response is so telling. He takes the animals and he cuts them in half. And he lays one half of the animal over here. And he takes the other half and he lays it over there. So that what lies between is a walkway. With the animal pieces on each side and blood in the middle. And he sits down and he waits. How does Abraham know this? Because the liege lords and the people with whom they would make covenants would often do this to say, if the covenant is broken, may it be done to me. Whoever walks through the pieces, may I be torn in two pieces just like these animals were. May my life be taken from me. You can kill me if I break this covenant and the terms in it. And Abram sits down near the animals and all day he waits. And when the birds try to come and eat these animals, he shoes them away to keep them clean and holy and to protect them. And he waits. And the text says that after a while, a darkness came over Abraham. A darkness falls over him. He goes into something like a, like a trance. And, and God speaks to him in this moment and gives him more promises about the future and his descendants and the land where they will go into exile in Egypt and how God will deliver them out to the promised land. And Abram waits. And then when night falls, two fiery images show up in the air. One is a pot of some kind and the other is a torch. And people have devoted their lives trying to discern what is the meaning of the pot and the torch. And there's all kind of ideas. But no one doubts that the God who shows up in the pillar of fire and the God who walks into the flaming furnace to save those men in exile is the same God who shows up in these two symbols of fire. And while Abram watches, a mysterious thing happens. A dark moment in the history of the world because these two floating fiery objects pass down the walkway between the animals that were split in two. And Abram must have been shocked out of his mind because God does not say to him, Abraham, walk down this covenant road. He doesn't say to Abraham, walk between the animals, get your feet in the blood. He doesn't splash it on him like Moses splashes the blood on the people later at Sinai. Instead, the only person who goes between the animals, pledging his life, binding his life to the covenant, is the God of Abraham who becomes the God of Israel. He is the one who takes the oath. He is the one who makes the covenant. It's his blood that's on the line if things fall apart and if sin still reigns inside of humanity within the people of Abraham. And hundreds of years later, he pays the price when Jesus has his hands nailed to the cross and his feet nailed to the cross and the spear pierces his side and it is God's body that is torn into pieces and his blood that is poured out to fulfill the contractual obligations of this covenant. Jesus writes on our hearts for all time with a pen of iron the words of his love and we call them nails. And the night before all of this takes place, he says to his disciples, how could they understand this? In the upper room, he hands them a cup and he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. 
This is the new covenant that Jeremiah was waiting for. This is the new covenant. And now anyone who is in this covenant, their sins will not be remembered anymore. Anyone who is in this covenant, I will never release them. I will hold them. I will hold on to them. It's my blood that was put on the line. My oath. My covenant with you. And like the great song reminds us, it is on the rock of Jesus Christ that we stand. When all around us begins to fall away, and the, the ground under our feet seems to be sand that is sinking away, it's on the rock of Christ that we stand. Amen, church? It is on Him and through Him and in Him that our covenant with God holds true because you and I were never capable of keeping this covenant perfectly. But Christ initiates and sustains it on our behalf. Let's stand together now. Let's sing this great hymn. And then we'll take the supper together.